Hi, everyone. Good evening and welcome. I'm Kathleen McLean, a programmer here at the AGO in the Department of Public Programming and Learning, where we foster creativity, learning, and dialogue through experiences with arts and ideas. We present talks, special events, performances, and studio art programs for over 250,000 people each year. We acknowledge that we're gathered today on Mississauga territory on land that has been home to Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat through time. Um, I'm just going to explain how tonight's event is going to go um, before I invite Kitty Scott up to introduce the speakers. You're all here for perspectives on the House Museum. We wanted to take an opportunity before Theaster Gates' exhibition closes to convene some incredible people to uh, reflect on and respond to the show. I always like to check when we're doing a program around an exhibition to see who has seen the show. So who has seen the show? Almost, okay, it's like half. For those of you who haven't, please go see it. It closes on Sunday, it's on the fifth floor. Um, tomorrow night we're open till nine, so you have plenty of time. Uh, we've, so Sandra Brewster and Greg Tate and Mabel Wilson are, have generously agreed to give us their time and be here tonight and talk. They're going to kind of give individual presentations and after everyone has spoken, we'll have lots of time for conversation with the audience. So at this point, I'd like to invite Kitty Scott, the Carolyn Morton Rapp Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art, to come up here and introduce our speakers. Uh, thank you, Kathleen. And uh, thank you, everyone, for coming out and uh, joining us for the talk. It's always uh, nice to see people out uh, on a Tuesday night, uh, thinking about culture, thinking about this particular exhibition together. Uh, I'm really pleased that you're here. Uh, and really pleased to see so many people uh, have seen the exhibition. Uh, it's one thing to make it, it's another thing that audience comes and you can't, you don't necessarily know whether audience is gonna come, but I think this one, this show has been quite well attended. So just thank you uh, for your support. Um, so there are many uh, reasons uh, to be celebrating and discussing the work of Theaster Gates in Toronto at this time. In an ethnically and racially diverse metropolis, he offers a vision of inclusive civic memory and an inspiring blueprint for our globalized future. Toronto has been undergoing a radical transformation, and this activity threatens the vitality of long-standing neighborhoods and cultures. In this condition, sorry about that. In this condition, the Astro Gates provides us with a model of bottom-up development and utilizes culture to benefit all. Um, I'm really looking forward to uh, tonight's presentations. And again, uh, I really deeply thank all of you for taking time out of your busy schedules. I know that uh, you can always say no to us. The fact that you've said yes and you've taken the time to come and look at the show uh, really means a lot to us. So first I'd like to introduce uh, Sandra Brewster. Uh, she's a Toronto-born visual artist creating work engaged in race, identity, representation, and memory. Her work has been published in Caribbean Beat, The Walrus, Small Axe, and NKA Journal of Contemporary African Art. Recent exhibitions include Newfound Lands, Eastern Edge Gallery in St. John's, Newfoundland, Blur, Franklin Gallery in Chicago, Performing Blackness, Performing Whiteness in Allegheny Art Galleries in, I think it's Meadville, Pennsylvania, uh, Mohammed's, and Alice Yard in Port of Spain, Trinidad and Tobago. I'd also like to welcome Greg Tate, as a music, uh, Greg Tate is a music and popular culture critic and journalist whose work has appeared in many publications, including The Village Voice, Vibe, Spin, The Wire, and Downbeat. He is the author of Flyboy and Buttermilk, 
essays on contemporary America and Midnight, and Midnight Lightning, Jimi Hendrix and the Black Experience, as well as the editor of Everything But the Burden, What White People Are Taking from Black, Pe from black Culture, Tate, uh, Tate Vi Guitar and Baton also leads uh, the improvisation ensemble Burnt Sugar, the orchestra chamber who tour internationally. Mabel O. Wilson navigates her transdisciplinary trans practice, Studio N, between the fields of architecture, art, and cultural history. As the Nancy and George E. Rupp professor, she teaches architectural design and architectural theory history courses at Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, where she also directs the graduate program in advanced architectural research. Williams design experiments, scholarly research, and advocacy projects focus upon space, politics, and cultural memory in black America, raciality, technology, and aesthetics, and the globalization of architectural practice. Um, each speaker, as Kathleen said, will address uh, the exhibition and uh, think together with us about that. So again, thank you, and uh, I welcome everyone to the stage. Um, so now I'll present my response to the exhibition. The basement was a place where my parents and their friends would gather, party, and simply have a good time. I think of it now as the space where, after arriving in Toronto, they reunited and maintained their friendships, maintained their community, and in some ways attempted to rebuild what they had at home while building something new. Although we were not really allowed to go down there, taking us, <laughs> taking us to these homes of these parties was not only a babysitting guarantee, it was also a way to encourage us to foster those, uh, those same values. Dark, sometimes with a disco ball hanging from above, always low ceilings, and a full bar with faux marble finishes and cushioned stools, the adults went to drink, laugh, flirt, dance, and do many adult things that we children were unaware of. These folks traveled so far from home at such young ages, I'm sure they were excited about start, starting a new life in a new place, yet at the same time missed that feeling of familiarity, that feeling of home. These gatherings were attempts to recreate that feeling of back home in a place so far from it. As well, they could share their experiences, check in with each other, report on their successes, and help each other settle into life. We can reflect on what our families left behind. Kaicher Falls is the tallest natural one drop in the world. Borda Market has the best fruit, and Starbrook Market has the best vegetables. The cathedral is the most beautiful and the tallest wooden cathedral in the world. Botanical Gardens was the most lush. The interior, the Amazon jungle, is the densest of its kind and possesses the wildest and dangerous of creatures, more so than the same jungle found in Brazil and Venezuela combined. 
The Essequibo River is expansive and has the cleanest water, stained a rich brown from the fallen leaves of the surrounding trees. According to my mother, Guyana holds the true wonders of the world, and she filled our ears with stories of people entrenched in education, discipline, and hospitality. People who can slap the best roti and make you yearn for curry every day. They can stew an incredible pepper pot, mix up a mean cook-up rice, and bake a black cake more moist and rum-rich than any of those from any Caribbean island attempting the same. <laughs> these are the stories we grew up with, and these are the stories I carried with me upon my trip to Georgetown, Guyana in 2005, and why, with anticipation, I visited these places my mother told me about, and I ate a lot of curry, ate a lot of mangoes, papaya, aurora, and sapodilla as well. As a child, <laughs> we were not allowed in the basement on the nights of those house parties. But one night, I was unable to ignore the, the low, steady beats of calypso, reggae, Motown, and some country classics that filled the house. I was about seven years old, and we were at the home of Aunt Una and Uncle Lennox. Dinner had ended, and little bodies were sprawled across the queen-sized bed and the carpeted floor of the master bedroom. Carefully stepping over arms and legs, avoiding crushing heads, I snuck out of the room and headed for the basement. Slowly, I opened the door where music throbbed from behind. I was careful while taking each downward step, remembering the numerous times we were told not to run up and down that staircase. The darkness that, that night made it especially precarious. However, a slight glow led my way. The glow came from a huge aquarium at the bottom of the landing. The fish led my path, and as I brought myself closer and closer towards them, I became consumed by them. They swam back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I became mesmerized by these graceful little creatures and their melodic movements. The sound of the music surrounded me. The subtle yet intense jabs and beats were poking me on all sides, and the glow of the aquarium engulfed me as if I was standing on a stage in front of an expectant spotlight. I felt like I was about to float away. Then almost suddenly, yet gradually and softly, in the distance, I could hear sounds of chatter and laughter, and then a voice, Mandy, are you okay? I looked slightly to my right and found myself staring in my auntie's eyes. She had knelt down, her hands curiously cupped below my chin, and all of a sudden a burst of sickness was released from inside of me into the cup of her palms. 
The annual Silver Room Sound System Block Party is where the folks of Hyde Park in Chicago have a good time. I also had a good time there this past summer. A celebration of freedom, love, joy, and peace. House music DJs filled the bars along East 53rd Street and eventually took over a stage in a large crescent in front of Jug Grill Restaurant. I witnessed friends reuniting and children, faces painted, being held up on the shoulders of fathers who grooved to the sounds bellowing out of tall speakers aimed at the crowd. Entire families sat on the curb of the street with the fold-out chairs and their coolers. A sea of beautiful black folk mingling, chatting, grooving, swaying, at times singing out loud. Their guest of honor was, of course, President Spirit, the godfather of it all, Frankie Knuckles. This experience was a South Side Chicago of good people, friendships, family, and fun. House music is in the souls of these black folk. It brings people together. The beat of the bass combined with the melody from the vocals had bodies moving in all deliberate directions. Hairstyles and head wraps, African-inspired or simply unique and funky clothing. My eyes were wide and my smile was big. Within this bliss, this musical bliss, a man in the crowd yelled out, where's the press? Where's the press? And indeed, yes, where was the press? There seemed to be a consensus that this event of love was worthy of reporting rather than the consistent media reports of violence we hear coming out of this city, as if that is what defines Chicago. I remember a round table I attended to discuss the term Chirac and the damage it causes on the psyche of young people, ultimately hindering their progress. One of the best times I had was at a neighborhood block party off South Dorchester, where DJ Gemini Jones played. She reminded me of our own Toronto-based DJ, Eloquence, who's also Guyanese, by the way, thank you. Jones rocked the street as parents did their stepping. Children followed with breakdancing techniques they had just learned, and a long lineup formed to jump into double dutch. Music has a special way of connecting people. I think of the gatherings with my friends and how much our parties resemble the basement parties of our parents. It seems like we are attempting to foster the possible intentions of their gatherings. People find their spouses here, Sandra, a consistent party host once told me. And what he was saying was that major life-changing events happen when we get together. I think of the Toronto DJs I've experienced and how through some impressive skill and knowledge, they weave music together for the sole purpose of bringing joy to people and in so doing, building and bridging communities. The basement is the foundation of the house. Through these actions of joy, we in our own ways 
are carrying on a legacy, building our own houses in tangible and intangible ways. Thank you. Good evening, T.O. Hello. Live from Sugar Hill. Um, just got here about four hours ago. So I told Sandra I was glad she was here to do the heavy lifting. You know, I'm going to give you the PG uh, Snapchat version, snap impressions. Um, these are just the notes uh, I was able to pull out of the, the gluteus after seeing the magnificence and the eloquence and the elegance of Theaster's How Do You Build a House Museum. So how do we represent the iconicity of the invisibility, the iconicity of sweat, of erasure, the iconicity of all our fallen temples of boom and the boom poetic? How do we represent the encyclopedic vastness of blackness, the darkly energetic blackness of spaces that matter to the black lives we make matter in, in emancipatory mass movement baptismals? Ponder the recent secret societies of the public spectacles of representing black radicality in deconsecrated white space. Beyonce in formation at the Super Bowl, Kendrick slavery to revolution diorama at the Grammys, Kanye's decolonized Fashion Week runway coliseum event at the, at the Garden, Kanye at the British Music Awards with a flamethrower, and all the excluded incendiary brothers of grime. Theasta Gates has now joined them in opening a topographical visitation of the paved over ritual ground where we used to burn, baby burn, that houses the roof is on fire. We don't need no water, let the burn, motherfucker, burn. In hoodoo, we can work the canvas with tar. We can paint with Papa's roofing black tar and splice in a graphic metaphor of the battle cry, tear the roof off to further mucker. How do you address the iconicity of the erase, those juke joints, those sound factories, those buckets of blood, those killing floors of nightly black reanimation? Sun rising at house too. Note the geomancy of the obelisk, the cultural indispensability of the, and this is where an old musician told me, he said, I always leave room for the ghosts. So I was putting them in my, in my notes. This emerged in the middle of the sentence. Sunrise in that house, too. The cultural indispensability of the 21-year-old black man died in a hospital near Baltimore on Wednesday after an altercation with county police officers who repeatedly punched him as they responded to a call for an ambulance. Underground Railroad. The archaeology of houses is liberation musicology, houses liberation choreography, house liberation theology here amongst the ruins of 21st century America's cultural foundation. Frankie Knuckles becomes Gates' answer to Basquiat's icon iconium about his work being about three things, royalty, heroism, and the streets. But sanctified space, sacred space, house space as urban black American sweat lodge meditation space, the underground Hail Mary road. We jack our bodies until freedom comes. The book of testimonials that comes with this show has to be recognized as a primer that should be given to every first year black grad student in the arts in introduction to the circle of alienation, exclusion, and career purgatory that awaits them. All right, thanks. Thank you.
Wow, I get to follow two poets. <laughs> that was amazing. But I think there are really um, wonderful commonalities and riffs that relate, I think, to, um, to what uh, I'm going to talk about. Uh, and so I just want to thank the AGO for, one, just launching an exceptional exhibition of Theaster's new work. Um, and I'm really just delighted to meet Sandra and finally meet Greg. After many, many years, we realized, what is it now, 5,000 people we got in common? <laughs> um, and just Kathleen and her staff for extending the invitation um, and look forward to, uh, I think, an, an exciting, dis uh, lively discussion about, I think, this really provocative work. So what I'm going to do is draw a series of sketches, some that are about um, black folks in houses, about theaster in houses, uh, and about my house, which I literally have a playlist called My House. So one, a house, a home, a home place, deeded, flipped, and foreclosed. For African Americans, the house was always a site of transition. It was never quite ours. During slavery, the house, the master's property, served as the place for the enslaved body, it too the master's property, to rest and revive before returning to the labors that increased the master's wealth. Even though upon emancipation from enslavement, laws constituted equalities between black and white citizens. Under Jim Crow segregation, white Americans used spatial policing and violence to control where African Americans could work and live, ideally on the wrong side of the tracks, on the polluted and undesirable land, such as the bottoms, and preferably far away from white families and public amenities. Many white Americans benefited from preventing black Americans access to wage labor, property ownership, and full su suffrage. W.E.B. Du Bois's Georgia Negro study from the Exposition Universelle in Paris, 1900, whose stunning abstract graphs drawn by his Atlanta students have been excerpted by Theaster in, in the exhibition, uh, the floor above, draws a picture of black life. The respectables ensconced in their appointed homes and the impoverished toiling in the no better than the plantation's shacks. A visual narrative of uh, Negro progress uh, in which Du Bois traced the contour of the black world illegible to many who lived outside its daily rhythms of the Negro's segregated spaces. The story of the house and housing is complicated. Public housing in the U.S. was called the projects perhaps because it was a social and civic experiment in housing the poor. Moreover, as a project, public housing was by nature a speculative endeavor, a plan for how people might live. Whether or not it's how they want it or should live was rarely the question anyone ever asked them. At the same time, the federal government provided money for the housing projects. The National Housing Act also established the Federal Housing Authority to make home mortgages affordable. Yet, in many metropolitan areas around the U.S., blacks were routinely discriminated against when applying for homes by redlining areas where blacks were refused to grant loans. Now, fast forward. In 2002, the Bush administration promoted its new program, A Home of Your Own, to increase home ownership, especially among minority groups. Its folksy title embodied all of the latent neoliberal ethos, your home of your own. Pushing subprime loans on eager buyers with the assumption that they were at risk of not being able to pay it back because of an absence of wealth or unstable employment occurred again and again. Profit was exacted at every stage through every transaction from purchase to foreclosure. 
The overaccumulated capital of banks and mortgage companies seed, seized hold of low-cost assets, in this instance, black wealth and the territory of the house, to turn them back into profitable use. The proliferation of foreclosed properties in black neighborhoods like Chicago, where Theastrogates works, illustrated just how just like the um, unethical landlords during the Great Migration, the unethical bankers and brokers profited from black America's basic need to find a home. But in black America, there are also these other hidden clandestine spaces. For instance, late at night, under the moonlight, or the cloak of darkness, enslaved blacks would steal away, literally steal their subjectivities as persons away from their objectivity as chattel in order to gather in the woods, in the brush harbors or hush harbors, for burials, for religious ceremony, for insurrection. Men, women, and children engaged in a communal and spiritual life, sometimes raising their voice in songs while dancing in circles, hands raised in a ring shout. Later, away from the watchful eye of Jane and Jim Crow, juke joints in the bottoms and on the outskirts became sites to revel in the best of black cultural expression, a respite from the relenting oppression of segregation. Song and dance reported a visceral relief, a safe space from the police spaces of the public domain where the slightest indiscretion of being in the wrong place or even looking in the wrong way posed bodily harm or even death. White racial violence of segregation was a spatial policing of black bodies that had and continues to exert a devastating downward pressure on black existence. That is why black lives matter. The existential relief was forged through many avenues, religion, play, sex, vice, dance, and of course, music. One only has to listen to Bessie Smith, Ethel Waters, Billie Holiday, or as Theaster includes here, Muddy Waters, to sense both the freedom and the anguish that defines the blue mood of blackness. Nightclubs, discos, and then house clubs continued that tradition of the underground by taking over anything, any places, old mansions, schools, factories, churches, and even warehouses. Sketch two, a house project. In Chicago, Theaster has situated Dorchester projects within the intimacy of social relationships and practices found within the house. The transformation of the houses that comprise the Dorchester constellation reminds us that a house is more than an abstract space, a property that can be exchanged for capital. Yes, the house is a thing, but it is also a locus of time and space where dwelling takes place. The traces of domestic activities that mark the floors, walls, cupboards, and door sills serves as a palimpsest of those who once lived there. The house remains long after the residents have moved or passed away. The house is a place of dwelling where the durations of one life's, one's life passes. The term dwelling captures the ebb and flow of long-term and short-term comings and goings across the domestic threshold. Today, the domestic setting of the Dorchester houses opens their doors to neighbors, artists, Chicagoans, and visitors who share knowledge and experiences at events about the changing compositions of neighborhoods and the city of Chicago. For Theaster, the initial creative reclaiming of a storefront as a studio and home rested away from the market, no longer a commodity from which to extract exchange value a phenomenon made popular by the recent practice of buying and flipping houses for profit. The storefront became a place where Theaster lived, 
but also a place to make art and to engage in a critical practice that instigates urban transformation. The repurposed materials utilized to rebuild the spaces also tell stories of other spaces. As Michelle Desertot reminds us, a space is a practiced place, a condensation of actions and habits. Salvaged Bolin Alley Lane woods lay next to rough planks for the floors of Theaster's archive house, or the installation of minimalist steel railings that lead down to the lower level of the listening house makes low and high aesthetics a sensibility common to his artworks, and one that has a long history of assemblage artworks from David Hammonds to Betty Saar to John Outerbridge and others. His deployment of creative reclamation has arrested the relentless forces of accumulation by dispossession that created a neighborhood of foreclosed properties and Chicago's failed public housing. Now, once the Astor decided he would live elsewhere, he determined that the books, the records, and the other collections, along with the artworks and community projects, would occupy the storefront, nay, listening house, and the archive house he acquired next door. Those who take care of the collections, use them, join events like the film screenings at the Black Cinema House, visit installations or attend meetings that have become new types of home dwellers. Dorchester Projects invites others to take up residency for a month, for a year, for an hour, for a day. By reclaiming the nearby Dante Harper townhouses, the Chicago Housing Authority's failed project of collective dwelling nearby, Dorchester's projects has expanded beyond the scope of South Dorchester Street. Now, whether the ambitious project of mixed income housing which places art and artists as creative agents to rebuild their neighborhood, will transgress the deeply entrenched racialized and class boundaries that have divided Chicago for more than a century, will be one major hurdle. But by locating an art center in the, mission, in the middle of the Dorchester Art and Housing Collaborative, creative alliances between locals and outsiders can become the catalyst for the transformation of physical and social spaces to create a new form of housing project, one that critically recuperates the work in progress spirit of the term project. Joined by the Stone, uh, Stony Island Arts Bank, the Dorchester Projects Network cultivates and connects new spaces of social and public life, collective dwelling, a constellation of institutions of art, culture and housing, sharing origins and missions for the neighborhood and the city. So like Chicago, the, grand, the greater Grand Crossing neighborhood where it is located, the rhizomatic Dorchester projects is always in transition. In that regard, it is a project, a draft, a scheme, a notion, a proposal, a projection. It is an enterprise that casts the idea of creative reclamation toward the future. In that sense, like the city, it will never be finished, but always en route to becoming something else. Sketch three, a house, museum. I hadn't thought about the improvisational nature of Dorchester projects and how much of its sensibilities are fundamental to house music. House, for me, has always celebrated community. How the beat makes you move, how you feel connected to the crowd, but also immersed in your own inner groove as you shake, turn, and slide. Baby powder always makes it smoother across the floor. It's family, it's men, women, queer, straight, young and old, jacking your body. 
House, like its crosstown cousin, hip hop, formed from a skillful melange of snippets and riffs, a repurposing of what had come before. When I call, recall my own youth in coastal New Jersey, a town called Neptune, I remember hanging out at house parties held in the basements of working and middle class houses in the late 70s and 80s, but the booze was put away. <laughs> so we couldn't have that. We just had our own bottles of Andre. Um, the sounds, the fashions, the urban slang migrated weekly from the main shopping thoroughfares of Newark, Harlem, the Bronx, via the train lines that connected us down the shore up to the city. This was the moment when the guys and my crew, we called ourselves the select, crew, uh, select few crew, brought two turntables to mix giant 45s at parties, pulling it out. Um, records from the crates, and then friends picked up the mic to slay the rhymes in what would become the rap revolution. But along that same trajectory, those turntables also mixed the smooth voice of Syl Sylvester, overlaid with the swirled pitches of Cheryl Lynn's wails. What became known as the one and the two skillfully remixed the group Freedom's kazoo kicked off anthem, Get Up and Dance, with Grandmaster Flash's sample beats of that song, and their big hit known as Freedom. So it was a kind of feedback loop of just, you know, of just sampling and mixing. Here in the basement, the booties were shaking, and as they say, the house was quaking. At the time, the music always felt in the now, in the moment, a recalibration of improvisation that made jazz a giant. So Theaster's How to Build a House Museum offers a fresh proposition, a new archive of the past perhaps something that has now become a past time. One has only to look at the landscape of New York City to see the old hangouts, the Paradise Garage, the World, the Bank, the abandoned schools of Alphabet City, a chocolate city reborn in Bloombergian terminology as a 21st century new New York City, a global destination with hip bars, chic restaurants, trendy boutiques, where house music now serves as a background noise for sipping $20 handmade cocktails with their $40 grass-fed burgers. <laughs> Elsewhere in Gotham, in my current home turf of Harlem, Sunday Sermon, a local summer get-together for house heads on a Sunday afternoon, is on hiatus after DJ Storm and Norman couldn't withstand the barrage of noise complaints by the new settlers, those new, new Harlemites, who refused to allow four hours of deep house grooves emanating from inside Morningside and then St. Nicholas Park to despoil their pre-war sanctuary of solitude. But house will go on somewhere, as it has in its various iterations, deep, techno, underground, drum and bass, acid, and so on. It's global. It's as much a state of mind, the way you move, that feeling in the soul that keeps house alive. So can I get those last two images? And I just want to say this is what I mean, that house lives on. It, finds, it, always, it's, it always finds its place. It is rhizomatic. So this is House in the Park, Atlanta. Uh, this is a, basically, I think it's now in its 10th year. It started very small, some 10,000 people. This is one of the pavilions where it occurs. There's a second pavilion that's now an offshoot because it's gotten so big. And you can start to see the landscape of tents that basically sprouts out like mushrooms around. But it's everyone. It's young, it's old, and everyone comes to get their groove on. So can I get the next, please?
So this is a 21st century ring child. So check this brother. So this is the House Commons. It will live on. Thank you. Thank you for those three very different but also overlapping presentations. I like that at least two of you went to basement parties without consulting previously. So this is the time where we have a couple microphones in the room. I've got one, and Annie has one back there. And if any of you have questions, we will deliver them to you with haste and grace. Just uh, put your hand up. I'm glad you represented the iconicity of baby powder. Okay. All right. Very Keep thinking. Um, I've got an, it's kind of an easy one. So um, for those of you who know Mabel's work, she's wrote a book called Negro Building that explored um, this sort of uh, proliferation of fairs in the beginning of the 20th century. And Du Bois factors really heavily in your book and also upstairs in Theaster's exhibition. I wonder if you could just kind of like briefly respond to um, or maybe give some context to the paintings in the show. Um, sure, I mean, I'd be happy to, I mean, they were stunningly beautiful, and when I first saw them actually on the website, they're the very abstract, colorful, almost Mondrian-esque um, canvases. It's like, why does that look familiar? And then I realized, oh, these are a series of diagrams, actually, um, prepared by uh, W.B. Du Bois's students at Atlanta University for a study that he did uh, called the Georgia Negro Study that was part of the American Negro Exhibition at the American Exhibition in the Pavilion of Social Economy. And it was basically a pavilion dedicated to data. It was about information. And the exhibition was how do you deal with the poor? Um, how do you deal with orphans? And how do you deal with the Negro problem? Um, and at the time, Booker T. Washington had a very strong presence. Um, and his idea of uplift was you just have to be patient, accept your lowly status, and you will slowly be able to lift yourself up by your bootstrap. Well, Du Bois had a slightly different idea about that. And part of what he was trying to show was the current condition of, of black uh, life in all of its complexity, in all of its differentiation, but that fundamentally blackness was modern, that, that black America was a kind of modern condition. Um, and he really spoke about it as a kind of diasporic condition as well. He was a pan-Africanist. Um, but his remarkable about those drawings, which are done both in French and uh, in England, was the way in which color, form, um, you could see them in the, you know, you could actually see them in this room. You see the original ones in this room from the Library of Congress. You can really get a sense of that. And they do have this kind of iconic, you know, presence as well um, in, the, in, the, in the show. Uh, and it's quite powerful. But it deals very much with this question of progress. 
which is also a subtext. And, and I love the way Craig talked about a primer, that, that that book is really a kind of primer for what you are going to have to deal with alienation and the challenge of trying to have a creative existence in this sort of body of, of knowledge that is not necessarily about you. Yeah, uh, first of all, I want to thank you, uh, Sandra, Greg, and uh, Mabel for uh, presenting. It's fantastic. Um, I had a question for all three of you all. Um, what is your relationship to uh, house music um, in 2016? Uh, is it something, uh, you know, nostalgia? I mean, Mabel touched on it as far as uh, Atlanta, the situation happening there. But um, what I find is it's a lot of, uh, you know, in Toronto, when uh, people talk about house music, house music gatherings, it's sort of wrapped in... Uh, tied to nostalgia. Um, there's, a, there's a legendary club here called the Twilight Zone um, that sort of uh, uh, Frankie Knuckles had played, it, uh, played at it uh, here and uh, it's always uh, going back sort of it's not this it's not this current living breathing evolved thing but it's like going back always so just want to ask all three of you what is your relationship to house music in 2016? Well um, probably should speak about our relationship to house, um, or I should, you know, 1996 and 2006, and 2016. But they're all they're all connected. Um, I'm glad Mabel mentioned uh, Sunday sermon, uh, which takes place in um, uh, my village of Harlem, and uh, has been under attack from the gentrifiers uh, for about seven or eight years. So there's a uh, DJ uh, named Storm and Norman, uh, great house DJ. He's been in the field for probably about 20 years himself. He's connected to a whole um, community, a tribe of, of house DJs in, um, in a house community of dancers um, that, um, you know, at this point, I mean, have a, a history, uh, an ongoing history in the city that goes on about, uh, you know, 35 years. Um, and it's a wonderful community to spend time among because um, you can see the, the, uh, the way in which the music um, captivates not only um, younger people who are just learning about its liberatory power, um, its emancipatory grace, um, its poetics of uh, self-determined movement, but um, you see dancers that are in their 60s who are incredibly fit. I mean, you know, um, um, who are still um, not living out a nostalgic memory, uh, but in fact um, reproducing the, the, the um, into their um, sixth decade, um, the, the ecstasy you know, uh, and the elegance of that tradition um, and making it very much a living thing. And um, what was interesting in my conversations with uh, Storm and Norman about um, these assaults that they were coming over where people were, essentially Sunday Sermon took place in uh, parks in Harlem um, and its first iteration was a park um, that was right at, in a sense, the beginning of, uh, of, of Harlem in terms of you know, New York geography, uh, 110th Street, Morningside, 
And so these are parks where on a normal day, um, normal summer day, um, there's baseball fields there. Uh, people are gathering, bringing their children. There's a great like kind of waterfall and pond there. It's very beautiful. And so there's a stone stepway that kind of leads up to this clearing. And that's where, that's where they did the first um, kind of iteration of Sunday Sermon. And, um, you know, the thing about it was that um, in terms of the population, I mean, the, you know, the core demographic uh, are people who are now in their, um, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, folks are bringing their kids. You know, it's very much a family affair, you know. Um, and um, if besides just the magnificence of the experience, what you always noted um, as uh, their curf curfew came was that the police, you know, made themselves uh, very heavily present, you know, just to let you know, like, we're going to shut this shit down at, at 630. It's about, you know, so play your last song and, and be out. Um, so it's just interesting to think about that particular community, because you're talking about a community of professional working people, you know. Um, this is um, who this community of house folks, you know, grew, grew to be in the city. So um, in a sense, they don't, it doesn't represent any of these stereotypes of a, of a kind of patho pathologized blackness, you know. Um, but um, there's just something about, um, as Fred Moten uh, in, in one of his talks uh, talks about um, how um, black liberation, black freedom, you know, um, is intrinsically linked to um, a, a notion of black criminality, right? So black people kind of peacefully gathering in a space to free their minds and free their bodies and, you know, uh, um, represent um, anarchy in the, in the eyes of the authority, no matter um, what um, kind of um, energy that mass is, is generating in that space. So, you know, uh, Sunday Sermon had to move from that space to a space even kind of deeper in the, in the my hood, um, you know, which is uh, kind of, um, you know, uh, what's called Upper Harlem or Sugar Hill, you know, and again, another park where families came out and did the barbecues and played ball. And, um, and we really considered this to be a, a, a safe, you know, kind of sanctified ground. Um, but again, um, you know, the, one of the most annoying things about um, um, the, <laughs> the new colonizers of Harlem uh, and New York in general is that uh, they're like the most noise sensitive bunch of people who move into like multi-ethnic urban areas. <laughs> you know, you can imagine, you know, I mean, it's like the, uh, the oxymoronic quality of their sensitivities never ceases to amaze me, so. I came tonight thinking that I was gonna be quiet, but there are a lot of things that are said that actually gave me a need to be able to speak for a moment. Um, I was thinking about the nature of house and parties in the basement, and all of those things uh, which took place with me as a child. But I'm thinking about something else which extends your recent comment about the nature of the spirit of the practice 
And in this instance, the house to me is not just the house, it's also the church. And I'm talking about speaking in tongues, God's trombones, getting the Holy Ghost. That to me was the nature of extending the nature of the house into the house of God. And the nature of the experience of ecstasy, which was far more important just rather than just pushing the doors closed and saying, we're going to be here and that's it. Can you comment on that? I'll try to comment on that. <laughs> when I was a kid going home to, uh, you know, there were times when we had to go home for lunch. And it was, it was interesting how going back home, it, it kind of transformed the way we became. Like, I'm, you know, you're one way when you are at school with friends and especially being one of the few or the only black person in my class or whatever. And then going back home to this place where there is acceptance beyond where mom is gonna nurture you and take care of you and you can be whoever you are. So I don't know if you are referring to that kind of experience, but also, you know, I, you know, I, you know, my talk about, you know, going to people's home, like my mother's, my mother's friend's home or other family members' homes, you feel that you are at home again. So you are just going from home to home to home. And uh, I don't know, there was something very special about that. I don't ever feel like I'm a stranger in people's homes, even if I did not know them very well, because there was a connection that all of these people had, and whether it had to do with where they were from before or um, the fact that they found each other when they had traveled here to Toronto. It just, um, you know, they were just really committed to um, fostering that idea of community, you know. So I don't know if that's what you're referring to, but, you know, it is, uh, it, it's, it is like beyond just a space. It's a space where you're safe and, um, yeah, there's, there's a spiritual uh, connection there. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that community, um, as, as I've, I've known, is always referred to uh, uh, those clubs, those spaces as, as church, you know. But they're an alternative church for... Um, you know, uh, a black community um, of gay folks, queer folks, um, who uh, were raised in the church, you know, in many cases, um, um, come out of the Pentecostal experience, come out of the Baptist experience of what I like to refer to as, um, you know, the most homo-tolerant and homophobic institution in America, which is black Christian church. You know, um, but what they experienced, uh, as James Baldwin did in those spaces, um, was not only profound alienation, but um, the energy um, of a profound sense of um, salvation and reclamation. Um, but you know, as they became adults and grappled with um, a certain kind of aggression and violence directed at their sexuality within the, the space, um, 
they decided to um, migrate that energy um, to these other spaces. And, and you know, when we talk about um, particularly black music, but black culture in, in general, like there's, there's no way to, to not um, respect uh, the invocation of call and response. You know, and so when this music um, began to um, evolve in, you know, in these very um, uh, let mythic uh, spaces, you know, in, in Chicago, um, people felt um, a call um, and found a release, and um, and that release was called Jack. You know, um, I like in the plaque for the show, you know, uh, Theaster makes the direct, the lep, the, the direct link uh, between notions of um, liberation and freedom and jacking, you know, which is what they call it, the, uh, the dance form, the dancing uh, that was done in that space. And there's a great documentary um, uh, the BBC did, uh, it's on YouTube. I mean, in fact, any genre of black music that you want to have a thorough uh, uh, historical, see a, a serious thorough historical inquiry of just put BBC, <laughs> then see BBC blues, BBC jazz, you know, because one of the things they do is actually, they don't only, only talk to the most legendary celebrities to come out of any of those musics, they talk to scholars, and then they talk to people who, who live the culture. You know, and um, in, in the one on Chicago household is um, uh, a brother who identifies himself as, uh, as straight, but he just talks about when you were in Ron Hardy's club, um, you would just find yourself jacking whatever body was near, you know? And he said, if nobody was near, you just started jacking the wall, <laughs> you know? Um, so when you talk about, you know, possession and Holy Ghost and um, I mean, speaking in, in, in tongues is uh, um, very specific to uh, a Pentecostal experience and, you know, um, I don't know that that's ever been invoked, you know, in a, in a house space, but, you know, that, that's the question for, you know, some of the, the, the house elders to address um, because, it, you know, it's definitely different genres within houses, what they call deep house and tribal house. You know, uh, so who's to say? Um, but um, you know, that's another, and that's another technology. You know, that kind of when I say technology, I mean rhythmic technology that unlocks those spaces within um, the uh, the congregation. You know, whether it's in a a Yoruba ceremony or in the Pentecostal space, it's real specific to certain chants, certain orishas, certain rhythms. You know, um, we're dealing with um, in a sense, the, the, the trace memories of those things in terms of working with digital technology to create, you know, uh, rhythms and beats and things. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to ramble on that point. But, yeah, yeah so. Um, I was just going to comment on the idea of gentrification. Uh, Toronto is a super expensive place to live, and um, the neighborhoods are really starting to change with um, trendy and chic restaurants and rents 
uh, that are just getting impossible to afford. So the experience of having um, just like a carefree place to live that you can party in, um, that's just probably coming to a choking point. And if I remember correctly from Theaster Gates' um, endeavors to kind of protect the, the bunch of houses that he renovated in Chicago, um, uh, did he protect this area from gentrification politically? And my question is, do you think the effort to protect um, areas that have some ethnic or cultural heritage, do you think just to, to get developers or capitalist hands off it forever? Like at most people can have a lease on the land or something, but it has to be dedicated towards cultural purposes. Do you think that's important to do? And if any of you know, did the Asser Gates do that to that area? Because I'm sure as soon as people got a whiff of what he was doing to that depressed area, they probably tried to rush in to uh, you know make it their own and push the, peop the people out. A good question. I don't know. I mean, I don't know the politics of the kind of the land that's around it. I mean, when I wrote, uh, I wrote it in a, you know, a, a, an essay specifically on that neighborhood. And at the time, looking at house prices three years ago, it doesn't seem like that had happened yet. Um, but art, you know, as, as many scholars have written, people like Rosalind Deutsch many years ago said, you know, that artists and galleries are often, you know, the sort of beachhead for gentrification, right? Um, and that art is also an agent for redevelopment. And that's very well established and it's grown, it's become more exacerbated with the growing income inequality that has happened um, kind of worldwide. And you see these models repeated everywhere, from Berlin to Johannesburg, I mean, it's, you know, Lagos, it's everywhere. Um, so it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging. I think the question, you know, that there are other models of community trusts, of holding land so that people can actually afford it. And so, you know, sort of coming up with those ideas and implementing them are certainly um, things that are gonna have to happen if people wanna stay in, in their neighborhoods. Uh, I do know that um, Theastra has established something called Place Lab uh, and really sort of interested in how to make redevelopment ethical. And so precisely the questions you've raised are certainly questions that he's now trying to engage to kind of come up with new models so that people can stay in their neighborhoods and communities can um, have the vitality, the identities that they have, but also bringing in the things that people need. I mean, people end up in depressed places, not necessarily because they wanna be there, but that's the place that they could afford. And they wish they could have food and they wish they could have other things that were accessible and nearby as you know, kind of communities used to have. Um, so I, you know, I would just look at his place lab and to kind of see some of the things that they're trying to do in order to sort of equalize um, the, 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 the exploitation of poor neighborhoods. There was just recently a uh, conference called Ethical Redevelopment that uh, Rebuild Foundation and Place Lab, well, Place Lab had put on. Yeah. And uh, I know that uh, what, I think what he does is he, he listens to especially what artists are in need of and then he builds in that direction. So if artists are in need of studio space, he thinks about the properties that are available to him and how he can fulfill those kind of wishes. So 
It's like Mabel said, he, yeah, it's very much on top of his mind. Thank you very much for those three wonderful presentations. A number of phrases stayed with me. One of them was Greg's, when you referred to black radicality in consecrated white spaces. And you listed a number of artists that have been doing that. Can you say some more about what that means or what it can mean? Well, I mean, certainly after um, uh, the um, the rise of uh, what we what's been called uh, citizen reporting of uh, police violence uh, um, against unarmed uh, black folks um, and the emergence of uh, Black Lives Matter as a as a rallying uh, political response uh, um, to this um, evidence. Um, a, a number of us who, of course, have been covering um, hip-hop music, black popular music, wondered what was the response going to be from the artistic community, um, particularly um, the artists who were in some ways considered um, you know, kind of at the top of the food chain. Um, and, um, and within, you know, about a year, we got um, uh, D'Angelo and, um, you know, Vanguard, Black Messiah. We got Kendrick Lamar's The Pimper Butterfly. And then um, we got Beyonce's Formation video, and then we got Beyonce at the Super Bowl, and, and that's the point. And then Kendrick Lamar, um, as I said, he did this, um, this performance art piece at the Grammys um, that literally had fire pyrotechnics going on on stage, and we did, they did the reverse angle of the audience. You could just see absolute terror. You know, like people looked like they thought they were gonna die and burn up in that building. <laughs> That night, you know, uh, I'm still amazed that um, that the stage crew, you know, um, even, you know, let them put that performance on, you know. Um, but I realized that, um, well, these artists, um, you know, taking um, uh, a certain awareness of the platform they had understood that, um, well, how I can address this in a mass media clickbait age in a way that'll circulate, you know, as a visual rhetorical um, uh, response, um, you know, to these murders and to this movement is um, I can create grand theatrical spectacle, you know. And, um, and I realized that that had become, uh, it had become a medium for these artists, particularly for for uh, Beyonce and for Kendrick and for, uh, for Kanye West, that this had become uh, an additional discipline, uh, uh, aesthetic discipline in terms of the pre presentation of, of uh, their work and, and also uh, a way of bringing a certain um, uh, 
kind of ethical currency um, to the work that they were doing. We've got so many questions in the room. I'm going to ask you to hang on, and we'll get there. Well, we can we can do a follow-up later. <laughs> yeah. we can do one later. Uh, first of all, thank you all for your presentations and your uh, perspectives on the actual work itself of, um, of Thatcher Gates. I want to know in terms of marble, and I know that you know, Greg is from Harlem as well, we hear about Harlem in different ways, whether it be a hell up in Harlem or it be Sugar Hill um, or a rose up in Spanish Harlem. I want to know, Marable, from your perspective, when it comes to that shot that was taken on 1958, in the Toronto Star today, we had a big photograph of that shot of the various African-American artists that were taken on that historical day. And you saw the kids in the front, you saw the adults, and you saw the house in the back. Quite a juxtaposition in terms of a house. What to you does that particular image represent in terms of today's perspective of that image in terms of where we've come from an artistic perspective? Yeah, my response is Sunday sermon. <laughs> no, literally, I mean, I have posted images and things on my Instagram feed, and it says a great day in Harlem, because it's, preci it was pre it's precisely that feeling of young and old, and you, know, you have the Harlem celebrities who are out, the politicians come out, because it's actually one of the few, you know, like the last one I went to was, it's one of the few times where you actually do get a large crowd of both black and, you know, some Hispanics who are, who are there. And so you really get the sense of community. Uh, and it's one of the few times where you really do, you know, just get this interesting cross-section of people. And it always, to me, felt like that's that, that photograph where you kind of see these sort of, this creative moment. And, and um, yeah, and I kind of run into people who are chefs and who are, artists and you know fashion designers and who you know and so for whom you know not only the the event sunday sermon is but also the music it is a spiritual release and it's an artistic it's an artistic space it's a creative space and so i don't know there's something about that that photograph that i always think of when you know there's a sunday sermon that happens so that that's that's my interpretation but again i mean gentrification and all of those things are are complicated and they're you know kind of deep seated in our kind of the general way in which economic inequalities have met with, um, you know, the legacy of racial oppression, and you know, to create, you know, like you know, as people say, the third Jim Crow, the the third round of disenfranchisement, and you know, I, you know, from my perspective and my own work, it's deeply embedded in the Enlightenment project. But hey, that's another lecture. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I just say that um, as someone who noted and was part of the. Um, some of you may have seen the film uh, Nelson George did on uh, Fort Greene community, artistic community in the, in the uh, 90s when Erica Badu and Most Deaf and Dead Prez and Wesley Snipes and Spike and all these folks were there and Chris Rock, you know. And, um, and so, you know, I was kind of noted, and as someone's from Washington, D.C., you know, I had seen um, in the 90s how gentrification really works there, where every time I would come back to visit uh, my parents, uh, another block or a section of community um, had, had basically been ethnically cleansed. So I understood, oh, this is a block by block process. You know, um, it has its own kind of glacial gradualism going on, uh, but eventually um, it will just kind of virally <laughs> take out 
of the DC that I've known. But um, uh, and so I saw that process take place in Brooklyn, and then as a but as a Harlemite though, it's very interesting um, because they're just an, I note the differences between what happened in Brooklyn and what's happening uptown. The thing is, Harlem is still so much the hood, you know. Um, even in even though the population um, is um, is uh, being yeah, it's you know it's becoming uh, it's becoming mixed but not diluted. You know, is the way I would you know way I would put it. And um, but I noticed there was just something very different about just the energy, even in blocks that were, you know, brownstones that were um, um, kind of completely taken over by um, middle class folks, and not just white middle class folks, black middle class, upper middle class folks too. But um, somebody once explained to me the difference between Brooklyn and Harlem was that. Brooklyn was black Caribbean middle class, and Harlem was black American southern working class, you know, and it's just a very different kind of presence on the street, you know. Um, one of the things I say about, I noted about Harlem relative to, to, to Brooklyn is that um, Harlem is bohemian repellent, you know, so that you might come from Brooklyn, you know, flashing all your cool boho wares, but you will eventually, you will get Harlemized, <laughs> you know, or you, and you will start to negotiate that space the way everybody else does. It's like cute is not going to get it. Or Harlem, Harlem is not youth friendly, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, it's just got, it's just got this roughness to it so that um, the culture on the street, even on a completely gentrified block, is going to be defined by two brothers standing on the corner having a conversation, you know, or, you know, playing a game of dominoes, you know. There's something just radioactive about that in, in reference to American whiteness that's just very specific to, 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 to Harlem. Um, hi. Um, so, I know the last speaker was talking a lot about the, the different subgenres that spawn from House. Um, and like I know, Greg, you've talked like you wrote a lot about cultural appropriation before. Cultural appropriation kind of became like the buzz term or like the thing to like discuss on the internet. So um, I just wanted—I was just curious about what you guys thought on the kind of like whitewashing of the genre because like something happened the other night to me, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, I went to this party, which like I thought was going to be like a dance hall kind of party and like I brought my Jamaican friend with me and like she was really excited to like hear dance hall because you know dance hall in Toronto is like very much the sound of the city because of the Jamaican diaspora and um, all the other Caribbean diaspora here. So we go and then basically like the DJs are playing, they're like black queer DJs playing house music, which I thought was cool but my friend was like not for it and she was like oh yeah like I know like it's technically black music but you know like it's just, it just sounds like very weird to me. So. I'm just, and like I hear this a lot about a lot of different genres that's, that's like also been whitewashed, um, like jazz and rock. So I'm just interested in what you guys think. Like, do you think that like black people are like kind of like not interested in house anymore because of the whitewashing of it and like how big it became in Europe and like other places or is that 
something else. Like, that's basically it. Okay. <laughs> You're up, right? Um, my first response to that is that um, um, black American teenagers haven't been wrong since the 1880s about the future of music, right? Like, whatever the 14 to 18 year olds of now are into are going to be the definitive sounds of, of popular music and even experimental music. Um, for the next cycle. Um, and what that essentially means is there's this interesting time lag between the currency and popularity of any, any of those sounds you mentioned, any of those genres, whether it's blues, and then um, them being um, kind of fetishized and taken up kind of 10 to 20 years um, after they have their most creative vitality within the marginalized, excluded, alienated black communities and then being adopted by uh, what we'll call the mainstream culture, majority culture, so forth and so on. Um, and of course, because of our particular kind of socio-economic political position in America, I, I, I maintain that um, even this late into the 20th century, what we call black culture is a culture of fugitivity it's a culture on the run. It's a maroon culture. It's always seeking higher ground um, in which to be kind of free from capture. Um, so the sound, um, in a sense, is a, it's, a, it's a projection into the future, always. You know, and then it carries the people to that, that next plateau. And, uh, but you know, eventually, um, <laughs> the word gets out you know, um, and other people um, rightly um, are moved by the, the, the energy um, that the culture generates. But generally after, uh, black people have already kind of, in America in particular, have already evacuated that space, you know, um, because of, of uh, 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 colonized neighborhoods, gentrification, uh, because of the way real estate shifts, um, I mean, I'm just, you know, I've become just acutely aware of how much real estate has to do with the, the production of innovation in culture, you know, uh, and it's because these marginalized communities um, are where the invention is. It's where the, you know, the juice is, you know, in America. So um, when these cultures are left to their own devices, that's when they generate, you know, uh, the future. Of, of sound, the future of, of, of popular music. Um, but um, when there's a shift um, in people's ability to kind of freely access uh, these spaces or when laws are, uh, um, are, are written, you know, to kind of make it more difficult. You know, I mean, at one point in New York under uh, uh, Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, it was illegal to dance in clubs in downtown New York. Like literally, literally, I mean, there are clubs that, that I used to go to where they would send firemen in with dogs, you know, and undercover cops in to make sure that nobody was dancing in the space. Because, you know, and it, and it wasn't just this um, uh, fanciful attack on, on dancing. It had to do with uh, driving um, those proprietors out of neighborhoods that had been targeted 
you know, for business redevelopment, gentrification, and so forth. So, you know, I mean, it was all part of that, that plan. But that's where the fugitivity comes in. That's where the maroon instinct to, to move on, to migrate to other spaces, you know. I mean, I've just, you know, I've had to think about this whole question of just um, this reverse migration that's going on in black America where people are le leaving um, these northern industrial centers and then going back to the south, you know, where so many of our, uh, our families are there in, in, in great numbers and um, where um, the, it, it's the way in which civil rights, you know, has made um, this ground that we associate with uh, uh, terrorism against black populations like safer spaces than these urban spaces, you know, for, for black communities and black, and black families. Um, uh, say that with some caveats, but, um, but that's, that's been the direction. So you have to think about the notion that, well, as much as we tried to claim these spaces as home, as communities, um, they were really kind of defaults and fail-safes. Um, and um, they may also have just kind of spiritually outlived their usefulness um, to uh, the populations there. But, um, yeah. This question is largely for Mabel, but it's, for, it's also for Sandra and Greg. Um, I'm thinking of my first reaction to the drawings that I later realized, I found out and read that they were from the W.B. Du Bois graphs. And my first reaction is like, oh, these are, these are very modernist art. These are in a very 50s modernist art tradition. And I found myself thinking about what if I hadn't, or what if somebody else didn't make the connection with Dubois and the graphics, you know, the social, socially centered graphics and just thought of them as straight modernism. And I thought of them as like, also in the context of like how 50s abstractionism made by people, many of whom were anarchists was of course co-opted by the CIA to say that in America you can make art that does, is free because it doesn't have to be about anything and how art can be political but, but art, capital A, can also be, also be used to depoliticize art that might be coming from a political base. Just any thoughts? Thank you. Um, I think the, I mean the Georgia Negro study was a pretty radical um, endeavor one, because Du Bois was a sociologist. There were just no black sociologists, period. I mean, like, he really was the first one. Um, and again, I mean, it was the fact that you could actually use information as a way of framing the problem and the um, problem of racism. I mean, that was really the point that he was trying to make in those diagrams. Um, and he wasn't going to kowtow to what Washington wanted, which was this kind of conciliatory, we'll get there eventually. He's like, no, this is the problem. You know? And uh, it was both, this is the problem, but we also have been insanely productive um, as, as a group of people, and we are imagining who we can be. And I think it was also critical for Du Bois to say that this isn't just that we work by our hands, which was Washington's position, but that we also work by our minds. Uh, and that we have this creative capacity in which to imagine our liberation and, and what America uh, should allow us to be. Um, and that's why I think it was a really radical proposition, precisely because of the way in which he was envisioning something that wasn't allowed to be even thought. 
Um, and so it's worth, you know, it's, it's really, there are a number of really great books on the photograph. Sean Michelle Smith has a really great book. De Deborah Willis and David Levering Lewis have a book specifically, again, on the photographs. My book has a chapter on, on the exhibition, but it's really, um, yeah, I mean, it was a really radical move at that, that moment, precisely at the beginning of the 20th century. And, and in the, he, um, Theaster doesn't have it, but in those drawings, the first one says, the problem of the 20th century is the color line. And that's actually where it appeared first, before the souls of black folks, which I think is very interesting that it was a, and it's shown in a double sphere that shows the black diaspora. So he's thinking in this Pan-African moment and thinking of the challenge of white supremacy at that point. And so it's a visual, a way of visualizing the world that I think, you know, that, that Du Bois was in, engaged in. So my question is largely about um, just permanence and permanence of space. Um, oh, sorry, should I start? Okay, good. Um, you said something really interesting about what transpires in the house being um, extremely important to the culture and just the people that were there to experience it. Um, there, there's a lot of the times the only people who know what happened and how important it was. Um, so I found that really interesting. But I guess my question is, with every part of the culture that black people contribute to or start, um, somewhere along the lines, it gets lost, um, but there has to be some sort of sense of permanence, you know, something to look back on. So if you, and this is for all of you, if you were to create a house that embodied blackness and the contributions um, that black people have made, what are some of the things that, like the non-negotiables that would have to be in this house? Well, I mean, it was interesting that, um, you know, Theaster posed this question of, um, to all these artists about um, addressing uh, the whole question of Negro progress, right? Because um, I immediately thought, well, this, this notion of progress takes place within, you know, what we can call a fault line or a depression. You know, it takes place in quicksand. <laughs> You know, uh, it takes place in a realm of advancing goalposts. Um, so, and I just say that to say that um, um, you can't make these assumptions of, of safety or security, you know, around uh, black being, you know, certainly within, within uh, the U.S. in particular. Um, and the thing I have kind of come to is that, um, um, Black culture is indestructible. <laughs> black bodies are not, you know. Uh, black culture, in a sense, is uh, fragile in terms of its, its ability to uh, institutionalize itself, to safeguard itself. Um, because in many ways, the people who are involved in uh, the most innovative production of it at any given point in time are not thinking about it as something that needs to be preserved, you know, in a museum, an archival kind of way. That comes later, you know. I mean, that's what scholars do. That's what uh, museums do. Um, and, of course, to that point, I would recommend everyone go to uh, the new museum 
of uh, African American history and culture in Washington, which is which takes you through a, a magnificent kind of 500-year wormhole from the beginning of global capitalism, uh, you know, in the slave trade, all the way to um, black abstraction and modernism. By the time you get to the seventh floor and, and pass by um, Chuck Berry's, you know, red Cadillac and George Clinton's mothership, you know, it's. Um, um, you know, there's a great story by um, uh, uh, George Louis Borges called The Aleph, where he talks about this one room um, where you can see every point um, on earth, you know, within the same compressed space. And the museum is literally that around the narrative, the story of, uh, of uh, Africans in America, you know. Um, so, um, it's, and it's this rare instance where uh, a consecrated space has been created to actually do exactly what you're talking about. And um, I'm optimistic enough to think that um, as long as there's a USA, there's gonna be uh, what one friend of mine dubbed the, Black, the Blacksonian, you know, on uh, national ground. Um, but, um, the, the beauty, you know, and kind of the agony and the ecstasy of, of the culture in the sense is that um, it's metamorphic, you know. Um, it's always transferring that energy from one space to another, you know, and the names will change, you know, but the function, the social functionality, you know, of, of that space um, uh, will move on under another name and under another guise as well. Um, you know, I was just, I was talking with Mabel about, um, you know, the clubs that are the, in a sense, um, in Atlanta, you know, which is an epicenter, you know, kind of black music production now, um, uh, the definitive social spaces are the strip clubs, right? And the thing about those clubs, which have now become like mythic or legendary in terms of Southern, Southern rap is, um, they're these, they, they've really become these spaces where a cross-section of the community goes, you know, the way they might, the way they once might have gone to those juke joints or uh, discos, you know, or hip-hop clubs in the past. It's like, yeah, now queer folks, straight folks, married folks, single dudes, you know, are kind of all in there together because that's the space in which um, this communal energy gets generated. So, you know, um, um, and again, it's just about that need to, to find certain kind of release in music and dance. Yeah, it moved to these spaces where um, women are doing Olympic level events on poles, you know, um, which, you know, you can go online and see if you go to Magic City on Google Images, you'll see um, one woman with her body stretched out um, horizontally from the pole and another one doing routines on her stomach, you know, in high heels, you know. Um, but those women are also understood as, you know, what, what you would call the A&R of Southern hip hop. You know, they actually are determining who the next stars are that are gonna come out of that music based on, that's where the songs get um, tried out, you know. So. Um, yeah, and you, you know, we can have whole conversations about the problematic nature 
of, of strip clubs and agency and, 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 and all those kinds of things. But that thing we're talking about in terms of these collective spaces, um, collective black spaces, um, yeah, it's definitely migrated there in the Atlanta uh, context. And Southern hip hop, of course, is kind of the definitive black music of, of you know, of, of, uh, of uh, kind of, um, of uh, modern pop, you know, so. That's why I like the States. <laughs> I have to say that um, I think in Canada we, like being a black artist living here and being born here, I think it's very important for us to be deliberate about uh, what our space is. <laughs> When you ask about a, a, a house, uh, being a black person or having a black space in this space, I would hope that my house would intentionally um, represent artists who are practicing now, curators who are working at um, representing those black artists. Whatever <laughs> is representing, whatever represents who they are. I think that there's a tendency here to um, look at the states, the blackness that comes out of the states and equate it with our experiences here. And some of it is similar, some of it is not. And um, what I see institutions do many times is take on this popular blackness and, and uh, and put aside what is happening in their, in their immediate surroundings. So I think for me, my black space, like what I, what I do in the summer sometimes, I used to do this exhibition called uh, Open House, where I would have artists exhibit in the house, in my house. Um, the last one I had 26 artists exhibit, about 90% of them were black artists. And black artists who come from all sorts of, like they have all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, you know, all over Africa, over the Caribbean, uh, born here. And the idea was to look at the work of artists who are practicing here and get other people to see what they are doing as well, uh, rather than what we normally see in institutions, uh, artists that are coming from elsewhere coming in. When I was in Chicago, people felt that they had the same problems there as well, that they were not being recognized and it was always artists who were coming in. Um, but they can go and see Carrie James Marshall at the MCA, and I wish that um, more of that was happening here as well. So I think that, you know, it's, it's you know, that whole idea of um, working at something and then, you know, you know, we're all able to work at something and then something comes out of it and that's the next whatever. It is, it's all a nice idea, but we have to, I think, here be more deliberate about those things. Okay, we're over time, but we have these two like super patient people who've been sitting here waiting forever. So I'm gonna give them the mic to ask their questions, but if, if any of you have to like go catch a taxi, I understand. So um, two last questions to wrap up. Uh, it, it has become a comment because you just answered. I really wanted to ask about the specific context of blackness in Canada as opposed to like the, the really wonderful explanations that you're giving us that if our histories are different, how has it been um, a different narrative or story to sort of create black space? And you talked a little bit about it. I really loved your contribution to the booklet 
in the in the exhibition. Like I, I was moved. Yeah, about Usagi Bailey. If you could speak more about that, and then maybe I mean you've already commented, but about black space in Canada. I'd love it. Thank you. Well, I had written one of the letters in the um, uh, what is it, the Native Progress book. Um, when I was growing up as a young artist, I have an aunt who had, uh, she was very much involved with many different artists in the community. And so she would introduce me to some of them. And because I was very determined in knowing who are these black artists, and especially these black women artists, I was aware of who was there. But as time went on, it didn't seem like many of them were being recognized by institutions. And uh, we can also talk about the institution, why do we need them? But the institution is a place where education happens. Young people come through and they're told that these are the artists you look to. This is the face of the space in which you live. And if there are no um, representations of blackness there, of people of color, then what is that telling young people, right? And me as an artist growing up and looking for these space, these people, and they're not there, what is that telling me about myself, about the work that I do? How, who am I being, um, who, who are my mentors, or who are the people who are inspiring me or influencing my work? That whole idea of art history, how artists from before inspire the ones that come after. If I am not seeing myself in these spaces, what does, how, how does my work, how does my work grow? Right, so that, that is, uh, I think about that all the time. I do, I think about that all the time. And, and when we have discussions around blackness, it seems really um, convenient for some institutions to take on whatever is popular within the media or cool or being a showcase elsewhere in the world, rather than look at what is on the street and who is practicing now. It's very easy to find out who the artists are. It's very easy to go to their homes, their studios, to see the work that they're doing. It is really not a big deal. And I, I know a lot of artists, and I know how many studio visits they get. <laughs> and they're not many. <laughs> so um, yeah, I don't know if that answers my question. But I don't want to like, I'm not a, a person who's griping on this, but it is something that is on my mind all the time. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for your presentation. Um, like everybody else, I learned a lot. I also liked how the three of you actually spoke at different paces. I thought that was really eye-opening. Um, my question is about intersectionality, which I think has been touched on, not just in your presentations, but in lots of questions as well. Um, like, this is like a black space, but it's a black space, right? It's, an, it's a black space in a museum, like, on Mississauga land. Like, what happens when institutions like museums and universities and, and media curators celebrating black art, but it's, it's American black art, what happens when, like, white supremacy turns its head and looks at blackness? Like, is that really a good thing? Like, does that make any sense? No. Black people are always under surveillance. <laughs> you know, um, and the, the culture is always ripe for the plucking like our ancestors were from, from Africa. Um, 
Right, so how, but, how is that supposed but, to stop? Oh, I mean, that's when you start invoking the R word, you know, revolution, but um, um, again, that's why, you know, because we have to operate, you know, uh, because the innovation of the culture, particularly in music, takes place within the context of the culture industry, entertainment industry, it's also a way in which, as a friend of mine said, um, um, rhythm was how we ate. You know, this is how people maintained, particularly, you know, within the most disadvantaged quarters of, uh, of black America, uh, um, a means of survival, you know. So we arrive after the fact to house, to funk, to blues, the people who actually created, I think as the Astor kind of magnificently um, um, represented in some of his black paintings with shoe prints on them. Uh, those, those folks, you know, represent what we call many thousand gone. You know, we'll never know their names, faces, you know. They represented that, that energy um, in that particular moment. And then um, it became the shot that was heard around the world like 20 or 30 different times if you want to think about genres. But um, um, and you know, I just want to actually just want to take a moment though to 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 give Theaster his props for the way he constructed um, this show, the way he he he, he used um, this all his uh, fluency in the language of modernity, um, you know, modern art making to create a space that if you know. Mabel rented a bunch of buses and, and brought the folks from Atlanta up or if we brought some of the, the folks from Sunday Sermon over, they would animate that space the same way they do, you know, because of, uh, uh, you know, he's actually done something that's rarefied in terms of uh, creating um, uh, an archival memory, uh, a meta-commentary, uh, but it actually has the capacity to be a functioning like house space too, you know, and I think what's interesting to think about is the way in which uh, uh, museums actually can house that kind of space now because of an artist like the Astor, but the doors are not open for the community that he's actually represented to actually make use of the space um, in the way for which it was completely intended, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, you talk about stopping it. I mean, I mean, we ask this about every kind of question you could ask about uh, as a community under daily attack. These are, you know, these are political questions. These are questions of, you know, how rebellion gets staged or revolution gets staged or the idea of that. Um, you know, but we, we don't have, you know, it's not like we're gonna answer that on a panel uh, today. You know, those, those questions get answered collectively. <laughs> I mean, I can sort of partially go there in, in the sense that, I mean, I think it, you know, it, it has something, you know, the way Sandra sort of talked about this question of not seeing yourself in, that's exactly my experience in architecture. You know, like it's like being in something, but your own cultural experiences are not there. You know, going into the, the Smithsonian was amazing because it was like, oh, that's my grandmother's sewing machine. And then somebody else literally said, and that's my grandmother's sewing. Like all of a sudden you're looking at something in a museum that your experiences directly connect to. And that's not, 
always the case. And I think that, that alienation is the space in which you live constantly. And so you basically become the Jill of all trades or the Jack of all trades. Like all of us have these kind of, I, I call it transdisciplinary because I work as an artist, I work as an architect, I had to become a historian just to even begin to understand the space, the intellectual and physical space that I operate in. And it's a project to constantly both unpack and then find those spaces of refuge. The reason I went to Sunday Sermon was because I needed to be in that space before I went back to school and had to, as I have to do on Thursday, teach Ruskin and you know the stone but but you know the way i'm going to teach ruskin is to talk about well why gothic and how is european whiteness being constructed at that moment so that you have to have those tools to then unpack that and so that now my students are learning that stuff they're thinking ruskin differently than had been taught by the canon but you have to really come armed and prepared armed and extremely dangerous as the song used to say <laughs> Okay, that's a very good way to end. Um, Sandra Brewster, Greg Tate, Mabel Wilson, thank you so much for joining us tonight. <laughs>